Christians. I think one of the hardest things for Christians about Christianity is the fact that it's not about right now. Now, don't get me wrong. It actually is. There's a lot of right now that Christianity comes to bear on. But at the end of the day, the hope of the resurrection of Jesus Christ is about the life of the world to come. It's part of what makes Christianity such a hard sell. I can't promise you your best life now. I can't promise you that if you'll just give your heart to Jesus, everything will be fine. I can't tell you if you'll just follow these rules, it'll all work out and you'll get wealthy and live longer and be happy. That's what most other religions say at the end of the day. They have a nice sales pitch. Do this and you'll live better right now. Christianity says you're going to live forever, period. Right now, kind of sucks. But in knowing about forever and what's coming, it does in fact redeem. It changes right now so that it's bearable, especially because you can see those things that are here right now that will last forever, namely other people. Not your house, not your bank account, not your career, not your travels, not your experiences, but your brothers and sisters, your sons and daughters, they will last forever. But again, this is like the hardest thing to put into day-by-day practice, to remember that it's about the next life. Because don't you want a God who's going to serve you in this life? Yes. Yes, you do. And yes, so do I. I want my prayers to be answered like this with the exact same request that I asked for. Not the way he thinks is best for later, but the way I want it right now. And when those prayers aren't asked, answered in the way that I want, I begin to ask why. Why, Lord? What do I need to do to get what I want? Now again, here is where Christianity says he is risen. And as we just heard a moment ago, you can't really serve this life and the next life. I know the text said money. The word is mammon. Mammon is the name of the God of this age. You can't serve what you get for yourself right now and have hope. You can't. Now, it's easier to try when you're young and everything seems bright and beautiful and there's lots of opportunity. It's definitely easier when you live in a first world country with a roaring economy. But it gets tougher as times and seasons come and go, as that body starts to get a little creaky and old and even get to the point where the doctors can't help you anymore. It gets tougher as you watch friends and family members themselves die, some ending up alone, the last of their generation. It definitely isn't easy when you can't tell what's going on with your economy or your country. Hope is about the return Of Jesus Christ. And it's in that hope, the knowledge that there's a king who's ruling this world, 
not to make this world great right now, but to take you out of its mindset and put you into the eternal mindset of the world to come. And he will come again to fulfill that promise that this is already proven by the fact that we tried to kill him once and it didn't work. He refused to stay dead. And now he's declared that he did that, in fact, to save you. So that everything that goes wrong in this life, even for and especially for the Christian, is there not as a punishment, but as a trial. A trial like a fire that you would put metal into in order to make all the dross come off and leave behind only the most purified things. And of course, again, that most purified thing is Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, sending his Holy Spirit into you. That's where we're going to start this morning in Colossians chapter 1, all the way at verse 26. So if you want to find your way to page 983 of your pew Bible, 983, if you've got your own Bible, that's even better. We're going to start at verse 26, where uh, is the culmination of this chapter, but is also the point. And it's something that isn't said as loudly in other places in the Bible. This idea that Christ, the Lord, the God of the universe, the ineffable, almighty, untouchable, holy one, has chosen to enter you. It's done. The very words itself do it. And the result is that you believe it, which itself is sort of a strange experience. Because it's not like I feel stronger. It's not like I've got an everlasting confidence. But I have hope. Really? Christ is in me? Wow. That might mean something. And again now, Paul is going to explain more about that and and get into that. But that's the substance here. Yeah, Hope doesn't disappoint. All right, so uh, we're going to start at verse 26. It's not even a full sentence because it's the end of a sentence. I just didn't want to go back and deal with the rest of the sentence. But he's talking about, here it is in verse 26, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. He's going to talk about that next. What's this mystery that has been hidden for generations and ages? The saints, that's an easy part. That means believers, both Old Testament and New Testament. But the point of the hiddenness is that even in the Old Testament, the believers didn't get to know all of it. It's kind of like if you have a mirror that's all fogged up after you get out of the shower and you get out and you look in the mirror and you can kind of see a shape there. You kind of know what's coming. It's not nothing. That's how the Old Testament faith operated. They couldn't see clearly. Now that Christ has come, that Christ has died, that Christ is risen, that Christ will come again, Now we see in that mirror clearly what this mystery is. And that's verse 27. He's made known to us, to them. God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles, that word means 
people groups, nationalities, tribes, okay? Anyone who's not a Jew, but it doesn't not include the Jews now. It's really all people. He's chosen to make known how great among all people are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you. Don't stop there. The hope of glory. The hope of glory. The hope of the resurrection of the dead. The belief that even though it doesn't feel like it, you're immortal now. And that your death, when it comes, which it will come if he doesn't return first, painful as it may be, will not be the end of you. But the beginning The foundation, the point at which your trust gives way to ultimate bliss. And the resurrection then will explode one day with that body restored from the grave in all of the goodness with which Christ beat the grave himself. Right now, without Christ, mankind is but a bit of dirt. Right? You're made up of dirt and water and some light. That's all you are. In Christ, you now are also eternal spirit. Something more than you were. This is why some of the church fathers would talk about the blessed fall. And you can misunderstand that. It wasn't good that we fell into sin, but God is so good that he turned what we did bad into something even better than it was in the first place. That now, again, because of who Jesus is and what he has done and what he's coming again to do, you're more than just human. You are holy. You are a saint. Now, that's the hope of glory, okay? Now, notice, though, I want you to catch this. Christ in you. One of the silly things about English, one of the very few languages where this is a problem, we only have one word for you. Most languages have a word for for you, and like even in Texas, y'all, right? Or I like the Chicago version too, I think. Use guys. Yeah, that's the mafia version at least. So so a a plural you, that's what's right here, by the way. So it's Christ in y'all, which doesn't mean he's not in you individually. He is, but he's not in you alone. He's in you all together. And that is where his, his church isn't a building. It's the people who he's in. Not just now, but in all times and in all places. Paul's going to talk about that more uh, in a moment, and we're going to look at that verse. But so the, the mystery, though, the heart of this, the reality of Christianity is that Jesus is in you. This is what makes the argument about, is salvation by works or by faith? So stupid. It's a stupid argument. What do you mean is salvation by works? If you're drowning, do you save yourself? But once you're saved, don't you swim? Yes, you do. Once you're back on the boat, you walk around. You're you're back to being what you ought to be. It's all a matter of cart and horse. Salvation is driven by Jesus Christ. He comes and does what we could not do for ourselves, defeating our enemy, sin, death, the devil breaking the grave then open for us, entering into you and inspiring you that it's about him and what he has done. But verse 19 says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Two things there. I mean, I, I mentioned already you know, that, that Christ has come, that he is the king, that he has achieved all these things. What Paul gets at here is how. How did Jesus of Nazareth do so much more than anyone else ever has done or can do? And the reason is that he's not just a man. That was never the plan, to just have men figure it out, to have one man come along who was better than the rest of us and have him make a way for us. The plan was for God to join us in our problem. That's who Jesus is. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in one of those conversations where someone says, you know, why is Jesus the only way? Why doesn't Buddha also teach the way? Why not also Islam? Why not also Hinduism? What makes Christianity so special? The answer is Jesus of Nazareth. Who else rose from the dead? Who else broke the grave? And even, you can make the case, who else did so many miracles and left such a spot on history that 2,000 years later, when we won't mention his name, we still have the calendar revolve around his birth? No one in history has been like this guy. Why? Because he is the image of the invisible God. In him, the fullness of God is pleased to dwell. He's happy to be a man. He didn't, like, hate doing this. He was glad to do this so that, verse 20 again, through him, he would reconcile to himself all things. Reconciliation. You know, you ever had an argument with a friend? You split up for a bit and then you come back together and you both say, I'm sorry. And you're really glad for it. Reconciliation. it's, It's not an easy find in this world, is it now? That kind of trust, that kind of respect. That's what he has done to us. We'll get more on that in a moment here. Uh, and the point, though, here is making peace, right? Declaring he's at peace with you by the blood of his cross. So it is the sacrifice of Jesus that does atone for the problem. It buys the problem. The blood is the money that's needed. Why? Because God is just. God needs to punish evil, like, and, and that's a good thing. You don't want a God who thinks evil's awesome. You, you really don't. You want a God who punishes evil. He needs to do it. You're evil. He loves you. That's a problem. What's he do? He puts his son in the breach. He puts himself in the breach, and he takes it on himself, and that's what the cross is. He's taking the sins of the world, your sins, on himself. Jump backwards again to verse 15. I just said this out loud, but, but here it is in the text. He then doing this on the cross is the image of the invisible God. Just stop there for a sec. How can something invisible have an image? It's a mystery. It can't. You can't have images of invisible things, but that's what Jesus is. And I I don't know. This is kind of a tangent here. Like uh, I, I always get a little frustrated by the general pictures of Jesus. Jesus usually looks like a fairly effeminate man with long brown hair and a beard, He's hanging out with children and sheep, right? And then we say, that's the image of God. And the kids are like, I think that's weird. I don't know. That's Jesus on the cross. That's the image of God. It's not not what his face looked like. 
There was, there was no beauty in him to desire and say, oh, that guy's God. It's what he did that he put himself between you and destruction. As the text from Samuel said again, that with the merciful, he shows himself merciful. He wants to be a God of mercy. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That's talking about how the resurrection is starting a new creation, and he's the first part of it. Back in the day, he said, let there be light, and there was light. You know who was firstborn at that point? We call him Lucifer, the devil, the dragon. He was an angel of light that came out on that first day of creation. Things didn't go so well when he had to serve man, the man of dust, and it all turned into a big fight. So now God's getting involved himself, and he is the new firstborn of all creation. This creation is being wrapped up and destroyed. He has started a new one. His body's the start of it. Yeah. For by him all things were created, that is, he was there before the beginning, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. So even in the fall, he's never let go of the power. Every power that's out there being abused by anyone, he's still the one allowing that to take place. He said it to Pilate himself. Pilate's like, don't you know I have the right to free you or crucify you? He's like, no, you don't. You have no power but what we've given to you. That's where he is still, always, never not been there. And, verse 17, he is before all things, in him all things hold together, verse 18, and he is the head of the body, the church. So the new creation that will include plants and animals and uh, planets and I don't know what else, all of a whole new universe, where does it begin? It doesn't begin someday later. It began on the day he rose from the dead and it continues to begin in you. You believing that this world won't be the end, you trusting that Jesus has you for eternity is eternity right now. And that is to be the church, a people who are not here forever, but walking through here toward glory, toward that better world to come. So that then among us, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. We're going to rise from the dead. You already have in your spirit, your spirit will never die now, but your body is going to catch up someday just like his already did, so that he did it first, that in everything he might be preeminent. He's still God. We still follow him. We don't get to be in charge. He's in charge, and that's such good news. All right, from here, we're going to jump up to verse 21, right? We kind of were almost there a moment ago. We're going to come back to it now. So what does this mean for you? You who once were alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds christians aren't better people than the rest of the world we're just people who know there aren't any better people there's only broken people there's only shame filled people there's only selfish people but we know that the problem with the rest of the world is trying to pretend it ain't true oh no i can overcome this so we'll, we'll get this done okay we'll see how the time and the wind and the sand does with you leaves you behind 
breaks your spirit. How many people in history have boasted that they knew what they were going to do only to collapse in despair in their latter years? You should read some history. It's a lot of them. We were all by birth from Adam, alienated from God. We hate him, actually. Hostile. Hostile in mind. And as a result, we do evil things. So the, the problem isn't sin like I did a bad thing. The problem is that I did a bad thing because I wanted to. I did a bad thing because I thought it was a good thing. That's the problem. And that's the result of me being uh, twisted, bent, corrupted. You were. Verse 22, he has now reconciled you again. In the body of flesh by his death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. This is promise. It's really important. You need to be able to say, I'm blameless. Especially when you just saw how you're not. That moment where something happens, I don't know what, and whether it's the rage or the despair or some other thing gets you and out of your mouth comes something vile and cruel at that moment when you shut your mouth and you could try to defend yourself more, it's imperative that you remember Christ has already forgiven it. So far as God is concerned, you're blameless. This hasn't separated you from Christ. You're in Christ. And it is that faith, that promise that will give you the power to try to speak something good instead. To shut your mouth before the evil gets out. To know that since you've been called above reproach by the righteousness that is lavished on you as a free gift in Jesus Christ, since you know how good that is, since you know how good mercy is, so then you have the power to try to be one who is like your father and shows mercy. And you can know that on the day of judgment, when the books are opened and every thought, word, and deed are read, when he separates the good from the wicked, like the sheep from the goats, you're going to be among the good. He's going to say, you're innocent, you're perfect, you're free. And even if you say, how? Uh, You're not going to say how. You're going to say, hallelujah, thanks be to Jesus, because that's how. When did I do these things? doesn't matter. Jesus has done these things. Now again, see the order. That doesn't mean don't try to be good. It means try to be good because you already are. It's what you're going to be the rest of eternity. Get used to it. Learn to see it. And especially learn to see how some of that good is just suffering. It's just suffering now. But to bear with others in their less than good is the greatest good for you as a family, as a community. I'm not saying let evildoers do great evil things. They got to stop it. I'm not saying don't discipline your kids. You got to discipline your kids. But I'm saying that the blamelessness which we have is that which continues to show compassion because compassion has been shown to us. So then at verse 23, if indeed you continue, read that as since. Don't don't let the if make you question if you're in the faith. He's not trying to say maybe you're not in the faith. What he's saying is because you're in the faith, 
you will continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, right? So as you find the alienation of your heart, the flesh that you have continues to wrestle against God's control of this world. You find yourself wanting answers now rather than later. Continue in remembering that the good news is that he is risen. And then don't shift from that hope of the gospel that you've already heard. It doesn't mean, again, that you're never going to feel struggle with your faith and trust. You're, gonna, you're going to. Only Christians doubt Jesus in faith. Only Christians wonder if they're good enough for Jesus. Non-Christians don't think that. Non-Christians are out there doing whatever the hell they want. You have this piety in you now, this concern, this desire to be better. So don't shift from the hope, which isn't that you're going to figure it out, but that again, I just said it, but I'll say it again, he is risen. Hallelujah. This gospel that you've heard that Paul has proclaimed. Okay, last section we're going to look at, last five minutes, verse nine. Jump to verse nine. Now Paul's talking to Colossa. It's a small town in, in uh, eastern uh, Turkey area today, um, and uh, he has not been there yet, probably. Right? Many of the letters that are written in the New Testament, Paul writes to churches he started. This one, not so much. So he says, from the day we heard, right? I heard you became Christians. From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you. This is, this is important, I think. It's important to know that Paul, when he heard about Christians anywhere, prayed for them specifically. And what he prayed is going to come in a moment. But I want you to know then, as I read this this week, I continued to pray for you all, y'all. And from the day that I first visited St. Paul, almost five years ago now, I have not ceased to pray for you all. And my prayer is very much what Paul says here, that you would be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, right? So you would know what God wants. It means you would know what the Bible says. It's where his will is revealed, both in terms of what should I do next with my life? Like there's answers. And also in terms of how come it doesn't work at all? Uh, there's answers. Why am I suffering? Uh, there, there's answers. Right? And part of that then is to have spiritual wisdom. The difference between knowledge and wisdom, to know is to have it in your head, to, to be wise is to see it out in the world. You can read all the books you want and you might not become wise. You can be wise and not know to add up two plus two. Now, Paul wants you to have both of these things, not only in worldly understanding, but in terms of what the Spirit wants for this age. And then again, this brings you to this idea of understanding Right? To be under something, but standing. Right? To know what God really is, who he is, what he wants. I've not ceased praying for you that this would be yours, right? That your mind would awaken, that your heart would grab it, and you would walk then as one who has hope. Verse 10, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. That doesn't mean so as to earn your salvation or please Jesus. Jesus is pleased with you. It means since he's pleased with you, figure out what it looks like to be good. Since you believe in a God of mercy, walk like you believe in a God of mercy. Yeah. 
Walk if you believe other people are important. Walk if you believe you want to live at peace. Walk like you believe he is risen. Alleluia. Fully pleasing to him. Uh, That's the rest of verse 10 here. Fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You could say that in Latin, increasing in the theology. I guess that's Greek, isn't it? Anyway, I want to emphasize fully pleasing to him. I said it a moment ago. you, You need to be able to admit you're blameless in Christ. Know it. You're blameless in Christ. Here again, know it. You're pleasing to God. You don't have to try to be pleasing to God. He's pleased. That's what he did on the cross. He bought you. And if you doubt that at all, again, well, aren't you hearing it right now? Was that up to you? You think that wasn't up to him to tell you? He's telling you right now. This is what baptism is about. It's supposed to make you not doubt anymore. Like just in case you question, well, maybe he doesn't mean me. He throws a bunch of water on you and says, yeah, I do. And of course, our feasting on the supper is there to confirm that, to, to bind you to it, to say, hey, don't forget. Don't forget. I mean you. I mean you. You are pleasing to him. So that from there, knowing you're pleasing, bearing fruit in good works. We just talked about that, seeing the other. Verse 11, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. Notice how he sees power as a matter of endurance and patience. Not overcoming and control. Yeah? Why would that be? Well, we have to walk through this valley of the shadow of death toward a better homeland. And if we think it's about controlling the valley of the shadow, we're going to lose. But if it's about endurance to just keep walking, again, there's the prayer that you would be strengthened to just keep walking in the faith. Giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you. There it is again. This isn't something we're waiting for. He has. Past tense. It's done. It is finished. Qualified you. For what? To share in the inheritance of the saints in light that is to be in fellowship bodily with God himself. Which again is the resurrection of the dead toward which we walk. He has, verse 13, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. This is just the beginning of the book of Colossians. There's a lot more coming. Again, what I want for you to have today, walk away with this, know this, the God of the universe in the man, Jesus Christ, according to the work of his Holy Spirit is in you now. How much more is he going to give? In the name of Jesus. 